0: Welcome to the Something About Science podcast. My name is Megan from Azo Nano, and I'm joined by Skylar from Azo, and Danielle from News Medical. We'll be bringing you a roundup of the latest research that is piquing our interest on our sector-specific sites. This week, we'll be taking an on-the-fly. We'll call back to that later. Look at the things that we inherit, whether they be hereditary or more environmental.
1: In recent years, there has been a significant increase in awareness surrounding women's health with various conditions and diseases receiving more attention and research. One such condition is polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS, which affects approximately 15% of women of reproductive age worldwide. But what is surprising is that PCOS doesn't only affect women, The researchers who conducted the study I will be speaking about today sought to understand how PCOS, a condition predominantly associated with women, could have an impact on the health of future generations of men. The study involved two prominent researchers from the Karolinska Institute, Professor Elizabeth Stenner-Victorin and Professor Chaolin Professor Stena Victorin, a renowned expert in the field of PCOS, leads the Reproductive Endocrinology and Metabolism Research Group at the Department of Physiology and Pharmacology. Professor Chow-Lin Dunn brings her expertise in developmental biology and single-cell sequencing technology to the study, focusing on the developmental origin of health and disease – their translational research investigated genetic versus heritability in the transmission of PCOS and associated comorbidities, such as type 2 diabetes. We will now hear from Professor Chaolin Dunn and Professor Elizabeth Stener-Victorin about what inspired them to conduct this research.
2: The interest is the germ cells, so which because I really interested to see how the our genetic, epigenetic kind of heritage can be transmitted to the future generation. Because I'm also developmental, I really interested in the in the embryo development, uh, like cell type specifications in this case. So when I started the lab, so one thing is besides the germ cell, there's more and more this kind of. Uh, development of origin of health and the disease. So a lot of attention also lay on this epigenetic inheritance, which not only like a genetic material, Kind of can define. I mean, all the affect the future generation is also we are exposed to this uterine environment, which kind of because during the development is really plastic or uh, kind of, uh, development plasticity we call it because we really respond to a lot of signals to to change the gene expression. So that is major like two very strong interest uh, when I started my lab.
1: Their research provides fascinating insights into the intergenerational and transgenerational effects of PCOS on male offspring. By using mouse models and analysing the impact of maternal obesity and prenatal androgen exposure, the researchers were able to uncover significant reproductive and metabolic traits that can be passed down through generations. The study showed that sons of women with PCOS have higher circulating cortisol levels than the controls. The researchers also showed that altered reproductive functions were transmitted across generations in male offspring. Ultimately, the researchers demonstrated that PCOS has a broader impact on both women's and men's health than previously thought.
3: From the beginning it was very much trying to ease their symptoms but then more and more my focus have focused on trying to understand the mechanism behind the syndrome my research has always been translational so we i have done both clinical studies and using different animal models and develop different animal models depending on the purpose of what we want to investigate and um, along this more and more we use this model that is in this paper that we call prenatal androgen exposure which means that we mimic the pregnant woman with PCOS we know that PCOS has a strong heredity as we shown in our previous paper that it is yeah 5% at least develop PCOS at adult age but i would say i think that number should be the double, because what we use there is actually our Swedish registers. And we are not diagnosing and they are not getting the diagnosis. Mm. So with that said, then there are not so many models investigating the pregnant PCOS woman. The, it is this in mice, the prenatal unranized model, but quite a lot of work have been done in the rhesus monkeys and in sheep. We do have rhesus monkeys at KI, but it is I have never worked with that. So before this study, we did quite a number of studying both rats and mice that we exposed the pregnant dam for andreins during late pregnancy to mimic the pregnant PCOS woman that always have higher andreins during pregnancy compared to women without the syndrome. And before this, we have demonstrated that the offspring, they... Develop a PCOS-like phenotype. They become more obese. They have irregular cycles. They also get some pregnancy problems and, yeah, metabolic features, insulin resistance, and adipose tissue dysfunction. But none had really studied whether it could be transmitted to second and later third generation that is not exposed. So I think the beauty of what we have done here is that we can really try to distangle what happened in the humans that we always have genes (laughs) blurring up. Uh, Here we we can really study what happens with this exposure to the germ cells, to the somatic cells, and how it is transmitted.
0: It links very well to our last episode, I think. In a lot of the discussions we were having about kind of I know it's completely different, but we're talking about gut health and other conditions of a similar nature. So it's interesting to take a different approach to those kinds of things this week.
1: I think personally, like why I was attracted to this research and something that the researchers touch upon is how obviously this is a women's health problem and it's treated as such, but actually the male offspring of women with PCOS may be impacted. So that completely changes how we think about, how we prioritize um, you know, these health conditions, um, stuff like that. So I think it's really interesting.
0: Do you think it will make doctors take it more seriously if it also impacts men?
1: Well, I think funnily enough, the researchers do say that they have gotten a lot more interest in this paper than they had previously. But for me, that interest doesn't come from the fact that it affects men and therefore I care more. It's more about how I thought it was a women women's health issue and the fact that it affects men as well is interesting because that doesn't mean it's the cause, because we still don't know the cause of PCOS. We know what happens, but we don't actually know what the cause is. That means that the cause is something other than, something that's inherently female like the ovaries there's something going on maybe with testosterone which makes it important for everyone
0: no definitely and i think one of the kind of results that was highlighted there was the higher cortisol levels in um, the male offspring you know we know that increased cortisol levels can have such an impact on like so many areas of your health you know it's not just about say like sexual reproduction it's there's so many other factors which i think as a woman's health issue is quite common but maybe you know will help reinforce that for um in people's minds that it's you know it's not just one symptom there's so many different things that can be resulted from it as um very good podcast hosts we do try and plan our episodes in advance and I notice there's a bit of a theme that I think we've all kind of going for this episode of talking a little bit about generational impact so Skylar what have you got to bring to us today Yeah, I took a slightly different approach to our loose theme of generational impacts. Instead of thinking about, you know, things passed down between us physically, I decided to look at a kind of clean technology perspective and a climate change perspective. And I actually looked at our site, um, azocleantech.com, for my story this week. And it was an article that was published a couple months ago, but I think it's, I mean, it's one of those eternally relevant stories. And it's something we haven't talked about yet on the podcast. And that's the UN's renewed pledges in relation to water. So for a bit of background context. So in March 2023, the UN held an international water conference, which saw the adoption of the Water Action Agenda. And for a little bit of context on why this is important. According to some estimations, one-fourth of the world's population has no access to safe and clean drinking water still. 3.6 billion people live without safely managed sanitation and more than 8% of wastewater is released into the environment untreated. So obviously that's an incredibly significant problem that has already been in kind of the scope of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I think it's Sustainable Development Goal 6. But this is kind of a renewed look at where we are now what progress we've made and what still needs to be done. So this water action agenda consists of approximately 750, I think slightly less, voluntary commitments, pledges and actions from public, intergovernmental, private and civil actors. And it kind of draws a lot on the SDG 6 that's already there. But I think that technically says that it ensures the availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for everyone. But although these kinds of pledges are essential and the fact that there are so many of them is amazing and there's so many different actors involved there's also been quite a bit of criticism of the agenda and this wasn't in the Clean Tech article but i thought it was quite interesting so i was reading reading up more on it there's an article from the world resources institute that points out that a lot of the commitments made at big kind of conferences like this they're fantastic in premise but they often lack kind of the finance the quantifiable targets And also kind of the cross-border action and cooperation that means that they actually make a difference. And a lot of the time they also kind of fail to consider climate change and how that's going to impact or or make things more urgent. And also industry and agriculture are some of the biggest consumers and, and, and polluters as well. There's a lot of skirting around issues sometimes. But... They do point out some of the ones that were really good. And I wanted to talk about one of them briefly, which was the Niger River Basin Authority. And they, in collaboration with the German Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety and Consumer Protection Organization, which is a very long. There's probably an acronym for that. <laughs> that. I can't be bothered to work out right now. I'll get producer Amy on it. But they basically together made a pledge to strengthen climate change adaption and mitigation through the nine countries that the Niger River runs through, which is quite significant. And it has a realistic timeline and a strong financial backing. But also, I guess what's most impressive is that kind of cross-regional collaboration. And it can be a great example for other regions to look towards. And also the freshwater challenge, which is led by Colombia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ecuador, Gabon, Mexico and Zambia, aims to restore about 300,000 kilometres of rivers, 350 million hectares of wetlands by 2030. And the UN says it's the largest river and wetland restoration initiative in history, which is crazy and also is another example of that kind of cross-regional collaboration, which I think is really, really important. Because those are the kind of things that actually make a difference. The small-scale things are incredibly important, but we're kind of at a breaking point now where you need that that big, massive action. That's it's not enough for it just to be isolated to particular regions that are or particular countries that are willing to make a difference. And just on wetlands as well, like they protect us from extreme weather events. They help recover better from disasters because of their ability to restore water. They act as a buffer between the sea and like towns and cities on the coast to protect from floods, tsunamis and other extreme weather events but also they reduce the risk of droughts and reduce air temperatures by up to 10 degrees Celsius. They also sequester a lot of carbon. I know other ecosystems do that too but wetlands are fantastic for that so just kind of protecting them is really, really cool for climate change mitigation as well. So anyway, there was a lot of different points in there but I thought those were some good examples of initiatives and that's just two over out of over 700 So I guess we just need to see now whether, you know, governments and industry in particular can commit to the pledges that they've made and, you know, see what happens until 2030. Because 2030 is really not that far away now, if you think about it. And I mean, hopefully it's a good sign that we're having these extra conferences and these extra agendas. Like clearly people are noticing that we're not doing enough. So hopefully, you know, looks to the future and, you know, to link back to this whole generational impact we're doing this for ourselves obviously but also for for hopefully maybe the next generation or our generation can be you know the first to leave things better off than we inherited it that's like a nice thought I think yeah definitely did you feel like more hopeful after you read and read around it like do you think or do you think you felt a little bit more kind of like oh okay there's there are some things being done I think it's a mixed bag I think The article by the World Resources Institute was really good because it took a kind of balanced approach. I think if you Google these sort of UN commitments and action agendas and conferences, it's all such positive things and it's fantastic and the goals are really ambitious and it's easy to get swept up in the, oh, well, you know, they've got it under control. They're thinking about it. Things are being done. So I think it was good to read a more balanced view on whether those things are realistic and whether they're enough so things like those two like intergovernmental initiatives they fill me with hope because i think should those things work out just think about what 350 million hectares worth of protected wetlands could do but you know if 500 of those pledges aren't doing enough i guess it makes me a little bit anxious for the next what less than seven years now So I guess my fear with all of it, and I'm sure other people as well, is that, you know, 2030 will come around and then they'll say, oh, you know, we've got till 2035 or 2040. And already there's ones for 2050 now. And the reason that we've got these timelines, it's not like a abstract or just kind of random Deadline. deadline. It's like, okay, well, we need to have these things done by this point. It's not really optional it's one of those where I guess you'll have to see what happens but I think just being aware of the kind of things that are going and maintaining pressure on where you can is is important for everyone to do yeah I think I would definitely like kind of agree in that it's great when you have a lot of like pledges being made but you don't always hit updates and I think the updates are almost sometimes more important than notification that a pledge has been made itself because it's like you say you know all these things could be created and yeah when it's planned out it looks like it could be successful and it might even start successfully but the whole point is you know it's not just fixing climate change it's mitigation it's creating things that are like sustainable in the long term and that can continually be used because you know we can't just like suddenly fix it and then everything will go away that's not the point that we're in anymore Mm -hmm. we're at a point in society where you know the way that technology is and the way that people live their lives is you can't just suddenly change it like there has to be or revert you have to kind of mitigate and like deal with what you've got if that makes sense for sure and I think like I guess speaking of loosely linking to water, but like kind of protecting coastal ecosystems and the ocean and stuff, it's a lot of the time people see it as a need to balance kind of economics or maybe like capitalist interest against kind of environmental protection. And Obviously, it's very easy to say like, stop fishing and all this kind of stuff or, you know, block off all these areas, but there's always kind of real world consequences to that kind of stuff. So. And those are the kind of difficulties that it's harder to maybe appreciate as an ordinary person who like cares about the welfare of the oceans. My point is that every decision made... It has to like take into account so many different things and a lot of the time it will cross many different borders and it will affect so many different people. So this kind of change just happens to be so slow so much of the time, but you can't afford for it to be slow anymore, which is why I guess things like the UN and intergovernmental stuff is is where the, the big changes are going to come from because it's whole areas saying okay we recognize that you know despite all these difficulties this is something we need to do despite you know maybe we'll take a hit economically in the short term but you know if we destroy these habitats we're not going to get anything from them anyway so (laughs) in the long term it's necessary. I think it can give people like hope or it can kind of make them interested in a topic if they know more about it and know more about the successes of it as well so I think yeah one thing that I definitely kind of like encourage people to go and have a look at is that just see what's going on in like your, your local area or see, you know, if you're going to a country or you're going to a new continent, just have a look and see like what is being done. Like the um I forgot the specific details that you mentioned, but the wetland restoration project, like I'd never heard about that. And that's something that's really, really interesting because if it is successful, there are so many wetlands around the world and I think Amy might need to check it, but there is like a wetland awareness day, I think. There is a world day that we do cover here at Acer Network
1: real-time podcast world wetlands day is the second of february every year
0: second of february world wetlands day yeah i think it is something that people need to be a little bit more find a little bit more interest with and that can definitely come from personal interest or from there being like um active interest or people trying to actively bring you in and remember to vote just to slide that one in there <laughs> <laughs> i always think of um jennifer coolish and the cinderella story you know and it's the drought throughout the entire movie and then she has her spring clothes on you on da, the
1: lawn it's like waiting for Well, you know that line that hillary just oh does. that she really yeah. waiting, waiting for, you for you is like waiting for rain
0: for and in a drought and
1: um, something disappointing it's, it's like uh, pointless and, pointless uh, and disappointing useless and disappointing
0: I forgot about that one, I love a Cinderella story, it is such a good film. Uh, If you can find a way to link your story to a Cinderella story, yeah, I'll be really impressed. Oh, hold on, I'm going to have to think now. As Jennifer Coolidge said in the opening sequence.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Cinderella story might have Jennifer Coolidge, but what is cool is flies.
0: (laughs) Anyway, we digress. Talking of Jennifer Coolidge having glasses that makes her look like a fly, I'm going to talk about flies today and what they could do to our global food chain. So by 2022, our global population reached 8 billion and the United Nations estimates that by 2050, this number could peak at nearly 10.4 billion. That's a lot of people. And that's a lot more mouths to feed in a world that is already battling an ongoing food crisis. Running parallel to this food accessibility is food waste and how much food is thrown away each year. For example, in the UK, it's estimated that around 9.6 million tonnes of food is thrown annually. For reference, the average walrus weighs one ton, so that's 9.6 million walruses <laughs> worth <laughs> Wait, this is like when... Sorry. You know
1: what this is like? This is like in episode one where we quantified... the pyramids of
0: Giza. Yeah, yeah. This is exactly I like think that. this is worse. <laughs> literally did you okay. google that to find <laughs> yeah. out i googled it cuz i was like okay 9.6 million tons like does that seem like a lot and then i just googled like how heavy is one ton and then there's a walrus a at great, this
1: point we waffled shark. about walruses anyway back to the show
0: what's more the food crisis is also affecting our sources of protein so estimates are stating that by 2030 we will be 60 million tons short annually of protein so what actually is protein and why is it important? Well, in terms of our diet, protein is one of the major food groups. It's composed of these building blocks that we call amino acids, which are then used to build and repair muscles and bones. And they're also used to in the production of hormones and enzymes. In the food industry, protein is often used within food stocks and can sometimes be used to help produce fertilizers. So as you can imagine, a reduced protein supply affects not only our well-being, but also the global supply of food as well.
4: The way we see it is a sustainable food chain needs to be efficient. So all of the waste we produce as a society, those are free calories going down the toilet. And we currently throw away about a third of them. So let's at least start with getting that back into the food system, which is, of course, where insects come into the play. There are many other alternative proteins that have lots of advantages, like you know things like bioethanol or or biofuels. Once the, once you've got all the fuel and the oil out, there's a lot of waste there that can be turned into fermented plant proteins and things like that. And there could be huge supplies of this. So there's some very ingenious ways of you know, there's uh, cultured meat is something that maybe down the line could also work. Very difficult to see how how we get there, like kind of like nuclear fusion, mm-hmm. but it's, it's 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 always a possibility. There's things like algae that grow very efficiently. So there's a number of alternative proteins that should complement the existing food system to not necessarily destroy the supply chains that exist since people have poured their money and their processes into them. But any more protein demand online, we're going to need different proteins. We can't eliminate proteins because people need proteins. We need more of them and we need better protein. And so I think sustainability would be financial sustainability, sustainability for the world's poor that actually generates all that protein so like actually them having a livelihood not taking that away from them and sustainable from um, efficiency point of view so we look at it more from the point of let's make everything super efficient first let's not try and eliminate things unless we're dead certain and then let's also have less food consumed all of us are walking around with way too many extra rolls in the in the uk at least i am and so let's try and bring down our our calorie you know our, our calories that's all fine. I don't want to coerce anyone to do that. I would love it if people ate less protein, you know, but most of the world is not eating enough protein. So even if we reduce the protein we eat, ideally it should be going to people who who need it because your brain, your immune system, your entire, you know, all the things you depend on to improve your society require you to have nutritious food with high protein. Or, or higher protein and so we can't forget that even if we in the global north are able to reduce our protein it will mean that you know, it'll be still going higher than we yeah. can reduce it by in the rest of the world so we need better protein to fill that extra demand and keep the old ones more responsible more attention spotlight on people that are not being responsible with it and reward people who are and i think that's a good aim for the next decade I think trying to go any faster than that might have unintended consequences that would probably fail to fix the problem and make everyone poorer and and worse off.
0: So what's being done? Well, this is where Flybox come in. So Flybox is a UK-based agritech business that works in both the UK and in Kenya and uses insect farming to transform organic waste into insect protein for animal feed and fertilisers. The Flybox Grow, which is kind of their highlight product, is a modular unit, so imagine a shipping container that's a lovely bright yellow colour. And this can be placed on site to produce either protein packed, nutrient rich insects protein or frass fertiliser in the form of insect manure. So frass fertiliser, because I had to Google what this is, is a mixture of excrements derived from farmed insects, the feeding substrate, parts of farmed insects, dead eggs and with a content of dead farmed insects of no more than 5% in volume and no more than 3% in weight, down to the specifics. So the Flybox Grow works by, basically, there are black soldier flies that are inside of the containers, and these are then fed organic waste from, say, farms. And then the larvae is basically used to form the basis of feed or to help produce the fertilizers.
4: So Flybox is an insect technology company. So fundamentally, we help food businesses to enter this space and to build their own insect farm. Currently, right now, it's very difficult if you sort of have a lot of waste or you're consuming a lot of protein as part of your your livestock farm or you have a lot of food processing, you're producing a lot of waste, and you want to do something with it, you want to generate more value for yourself and for society, let's say by doing an insect farm, it's very difficult to get someone to come and build that for you. It has to be done bespoke, needs consultants, all the rest of it, and needs quite a big price tag if you want to do it, certainly in the global north. So Flybox is fundamentally addressing that problem. Like, How do we lower the barrier entry, empower people with the tools to get into this exciting space across the world, global south and global north? And so we are developing a suite of modules, Flybox modules, that deal with the whole insect farm, from breeding, nursery, growing, waste processing, product processing. So we want to have a full farm solution. So you can go as far as from one Flybox all the way to a 30-flybox in a full configuration. That's our our North Star, if you like. And with these Flybox modules, they can be arranged in different configurations to suit any process, any product specification.
0: So Flybox has also recently been awarded the Innovate UK funding of £1 million towards the 360 Farm project, which is the world's first end-to-end modular insect farm that hopes to create a sustainable protein source on commercial farms. I don't want to say too much as we're going to hear from the Firebox team soon, but I just kind of wanted to share this today because personally, I find kind of any initiative that can be easily integrated into existing systems and workflows a really kind of economic way. I find this like really, really interesting, especially when they can have quite a large impact. So, a lot of the kind of things that come from that Flybox is trying to tackle is the idea of this kind of circular economy and to also help reduce carbon emissions because regarding kind of I didn't really know or really think about it but with organic waste from say like farms sometimes you have to actually outsource that waste removal and that like many kind of like supply chains when you lengthen the supply chain it just kind of increases say like the carbon emissions um that are kind of being released or that are associated to it but also reduces the sustainability of the process as well. I love this. I think it's so cool. I really like it, especially because I can't remember if you touched on it, but the amount of land it will save. Mm-hmm. Like farmland is one of the biggest carbon, like pollution, I can't remember the word for it. Carbon emitters, the, the yeah. farms themselves emit a lot of carbon.
1: Because of like land clearage and stuff like that. Land clearing that, so. as well,
0: but also like if you're if you're clearing land for a farm... Well, animals themselves release a lot of methane and stuff. Uh, but also you can't have trees there. You can't have different. There's not much biodiversity on farms. Obviously it's predominantly a monoculture. Um, if there are any plants. Um, so you're kind of tackling so many different issues when it comes to like climate change and resource shortages and a bunch of other things just with this one solution. Well, that's the thing. And that's why I quite liked it because it is closing that, that loop and it is, um, you know it's given farms the option to produce their own feed and to help produce their own fertilizers because obviously you know a lot of farms will have to kind of buy in stock which can again like lengthen supply chains and things and again we're kind of having like organic waste say on the property it's all well and good say having a massive compost bin but then you know what do you do with it it's just staying there or is it kind of like contributing to those carbon emissions on the farm when you can actually repurpose that waste into producing something that goes straight back into the system mm. it just seems beneficial overall like there's not really anybody losing out there we love circular processes also i meant to say that farms are big greenhouse gas emitters not specifically carbon um because it's mainly methane mm. but yeah sorry i realized <laughs> it after i said it doing your own fact check yeah <laughs> but yeah no this is really cool i also saw on their website the world's predicted to experience a shortage of 60 million tons of protein each year by 2030 which is crazy do we know why that is growing population less land to be like farmed and kind of used for for protein production i guess as well i think there's that i think also this is just a guess but i would imagine that Because a lot of protein also kind of comes from plants like soya. If I know that there's sometimes like extreme weather events or reduced lands can affect the growth of these plants, that would also decrease their protein sources too. But when we think of kind of food waste or food availability, we often think of it as a kind of very top level where we just see food as this one entity and we don't actually always think about the constituents or even down to a molecular level. So I think that's quite important to highlight as well that, you know, like a food crisis isn't just about like the end product but it's about what is actually available to contribute to our diet and obviously protein is such an important part of it I think it has definitely received a lot more I say a lot more interest over the past kind of like 10-20 years mostly I would kind of say from like the people that invest in more in kind of like supplements I suppose you could say the like nutrition and well-being industry yeah that thank you (laughs) Danielle that one that with so many people that's I'd say like increasing the demand as well and it's important that you know we can kind of satisfy that
1: and it's interesting how flies and insects in general have been sort of becoming more and more prevalent in this discussion of protein whether that be actually consuming insects as part of your diet or things like this
0: definitely I think it's either Aldi or Lidl have either released or producing a fly burger really I think so yeah um we might have to check <laughs> fact check that real time fact check it
1: is it's uh oh, the bug, it? grub. bug grub bug grub bug I'd grub it. you would eat the fly burger then
0: i don't see how it's any different to eating meat it's just more sustainable it's just like our brains don't i was thinking, so interesting do you class it as me or do you class that is meat alternative insofar i mean as it's just another form of protein oh, yeah, okay i think like it's all subjective what we do and don't eat, like what animals we see as friends, what animals we see as food <laughs> yeah, anyway. True, true. Just because like, we haven't, we've grown up thinking bugs are yucky. I feel like you just need to change the way that you see it. Also, it's not going to taste like bugs. If it? it was
1: good yeah. enough for Timon and Pumper and the Lion King. <laughs> I,
0: I think I'd eat it because like, I have full faith that they probably make it taste really nice. Well,
1: they've made chicken. Well, cricket nuggets, uh, cricket mints, the cricket burger. Cri- chicken nuggets. Cri- chicken. Honestly, it's
0: probably, like, compared to a McDonald's chicken nugget, when it's all ground up, it's basically the same thing. Yeah, There's, I think part of, like, eating insects as well can be a bit of a cultural thing. Like, in the UK, it's not really. That's I mean, what like, I mean, though. Yeah. I feel like we just need to change our mindset yeah. towards it. I'm saying all of this, but I've not been presented with one yet. Do you think they'd market it as, like, a cricket, or do you think they'd? Because I was saying, I wonder if you'd give it, like, the species name like would that like almost Dracephala melanogaster yeah do you know burger? what I mean like, no but this is made of like so much like of this because would that put people off not knowing? or are they going to start giving flies, flies code names? I don't want to see an image of it on the packaging but like so I don't want to like be opening up to Fry and it's just like a picture of a fly just like a little leg, like yeah. <laughs> 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 well, I like to think it'll be very like I mean I just saw the packaging okay well that's a wrap for this episode thank you for listening to something about science and don't forget to check out the content discussed as all links are in the description if you enjoyed listening please think about leaving a review on your podcast provider sharing this episode on social media or with friends family and colleagues you think might enjoy it as well
1: this episode was brought to you by azo network
0: we'll be back soon with more discussions about science